Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. President Joe Biden spent a whirlwind four days traveling to the Middle East, visiting Israel and Saudi Arabia with his every move and every word scrutinized. Joining me to talk about what he accomplished and what he didn't are two people who are as close to the topic as possible. First, David Makovsky is the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and director of the Koret Project on Arab-Israel Relations. He's a former senior advisor to the Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations in the State Department during the Obama years. More importantly, for podcast listeners, he hosts Decision Points, a podcast on key moments in Israel's history and its present. But before all that, David was one of us, an award-winning journalist, including a stint as diplomatic correspondent for Haaretz. And he was the very first reporter for an Israeli outlet ever credentialed to report from Saudi Arabia in the mid-1990s, back when MBS was probably in elementary school or something. Hey, David, how are you? Good to be with you, Allison. You bring back memories. Also joining us is my colleague, Ben Samuels, DC correspondent for Haaretz, who just happens to be the second credentialed Israeli journalist to report from Saudi Arabia. Ben is back in DC after joining President Biden on his trip, including hopping a historic first flight directly from Ben Gurion Airport to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Hi, Ben. Hello. You and uh, the president recovering from your travels? Well, listen, if anyone accuses the president of lacking stamina, I urge them to follow him on a four-day visit to the Middle East and try to keep up with him. Really, really? He uh, has a lot of uh, pep in his step still? The schedule can not be described any other way besides grueling. So since we've got this rare opportunity here to have you two history makers, so why don't we start with your comparative Saudi experiences nearly a quarter century apart? David, what do you remember from your trip as being a reporter for an Israeli newspaper in Saudi Arabia? I, I remember at a time that people were always striving. It's, it's, out, it's deja vu all over again, to quote the famous philosopher Yogi Berra, although that's lost probably on Israelis. You know, then, too, people were looking for any telltale signs of normalization. And so, you know, you thought the journalists became part of the message in a certain way. I made two trips, one to Riyadh and then to Jeddah. I remember on one trip was Hanukkah and some journalists and myself, a member of the U.S. peace team, we, we lit Hanukkah candles in Saudi Arabia. So I think that might have been another distinction, but it was uh, it was something I'll, uh, I'll always remember. One, one anecdote was that the Saudis insisted on paying for phone calls of journalists, and there was an AP reporter for decades since the Kissinger shuttles named Barry Schweid, who you may remember, Allison, not that you go back that far, you know, and he insisted on talking to his mother in Yiddish, I remember, from Saudi Arabia. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, uh, did did you feel like it was an event that uh, here you were reporting for Haaretz um, from Saudi Arabia, officially, on the record, not hiding it in any way? Definitely. And I mean, I think it kind of fit into the general theme that the president was trying to really stress during the first leg of his trip about, you know, regional integration and Israel's further normalization into the Middle East. And, you know, the Saudis announced the airspace deal where Israeli flights were allowed to fly over Saudi Arabia for all flights. You know, the announcement wasn't specifically addressed to Israel, but it obviously included Israel. And they announced that about two hours before we departed for Jeddah. So, you know, it was really 
you felt history being made in real time, for sure. So let's take a step back and look at the trip as a whole. David, as a longtime observer of uh, U.S. presidents visiting Israel, you can't tell a gold story probably like uh, President Biden can. But that I cannot do. <laughs> but you definitely go back to the 1980s, that I know. So did this trip meet your expectations or did anything take you by surprise? Okay, look, there were, there's different parts of this trip, obviously. And I don't think there was anything that uh, knocked my socks off in a sense that we didn't expect, but it's different expected. And then to see it happen, you know, in Israel, you know, there's the first part of the trip, the Israel part, the Palestinian part, and there's the Saudi part where Ben was. Uh, and, and I was following him from a distance. But in Israel, clearly he was showered with a very warm embrace. You know, you'd have to be the most hardened cynic not to be moved uh, when he got down on his knee to project empathy with the, these two elderly women Holocaust survivors, and he tears up. That that was no one knew that was coming. So that was, I guess, a surprise. But it was an iconic photo. Uh, and, you know, this was someone who gets off the plane and says, hey, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. He's the visceral politician that Israelis love. He wears his love on his sleeve. And that authenticity, I think, really uh, came across. So there was the public piece of this. There was the policy piece of this, which I don't think broke a lot of new ground in Israel, but, you know, it was kind of a, a, a manifesto of what a Biden Democrat was on, on a lot of Middle East issues that he would not let the progressive wing kind of define uh, America's relationship to Israel. Um, and I think the uh, itemization of that was important. In watching the commentary on the Israel part, there was a sense of almost mourning among some of the Israeli commentators, I felt, that this was the last of an era. There, there won't be a Democrat like Biden uh, who lived through the epic events of the 20th century. Uh, but I would argue that it's not preordained and it's very much up to Israel in no small measure to see if such a warm relationship continues. And you shouldn't assume it's past tense. Now the Middle East could actually be partially at least an opportunity. Iran stands looming out there, but the idea of the Middle East of an, as a regional opportunity, that's something that no American president has been able to say. And I think he used the word regional integration many times to, to really hammer home that point. Ben, you were traveling with all the cynical Beltway journalists. Um, what were your observations uh, regarding expectations versus reality? Well, cynical indeed. So <laughs> let me allow myself to take a little bit more of a glass half empty view than David did about the trip. Um, you know, he quoted famous philosopher Yogi Berra. I'll quote famous philosopher Gwyneth Paltrow. You know, I think this trip really marked the conscious up uncoupling of Israel and the Palestinians in the eyes of U.S. policy. You know, this really marked a new era in terms of how the United States approaches the Middle East, where the primary policy point of the U.S.-Israel relationship isn't based on a two-state solution, but it's based on regional in integration. So everything that David said about Biden stressing his you know, ties with Israel and his unshakable bond with Israel and unshakable U.S. support of Israel is true, but at what cost does that come? And how is that connected to the facts on the ground? And you know, I think the fact that a two-state solution got nothing but a cursory mention throughout the trip, including in this landmark Jerusalem declaration that was the center of the trip. And, you know, this didn't offer any new policy. It was just a policy review of things that are already in place. And the two-state solution didn't get mentioned towards the very bottom of the document. 
you know, there were zero unilateral commitments that Israel had to make in this document. There were some shared commitments. There were a lot of commitments that the United States was making to Israel, but there were no commitments that Israel was making to anyone. So, you know, I think that's very important to stress. And then, you know, all of the stuff about, you know, regional integration is on the horizon. I think the Israelis were really trying to play up regional integration as if it was something that was very much on the horizon, whether it was, you know, full normalization of Saudi Arabia or whether it was a creation of a regional defense network. And the fact that, you know, this overflight deal was reached, the deal on the Red Sea Islands was reached right before Biden departed for Saudi Arabia, you know, you would really think that this was something that was really on the offing. But as soon as we landed in Saudi Arabia, you know, there was a very noticeable vibe shift. You know, I think we landed and it was very clear that both U.S. and Saudi officials were very, very deliberate in making sure that everything seemed as if it was going according to plan, that the meeting went well. You know, American press was very much sequestered from most of the events. You know, the pool traveling with the president was on the bus when he met with the crown prince for the first time. You know, we didn't see the fist bump. You know, we saw that from Saudi media images. And then, you know, Saudi press was, or Saudi officials were very deliberate in terms of which American media they would engage with, in terms of both the time allotted, in terms of the form of the interview, in terms of the attribution that was allowed. So, you know, they, it was really much like a matter of message control from the Saudis throughout the trip. And then only that, but, you know, the Saudis very much tried to throw in cold water on any sort of further normalization in the offing. They said that there would be no full normalization until a two-state solution was reached. You know, they said the airspace deal and the islands was, you know, for their own self-interest, and it wasn't any sort of indication that normalization was on the horizon. You know, Biden didn't even mention Israel in his speech to the GCC plus three forum. So, you know, I think any sort of indication that, you know, this is a new Middle East was like, we were quickly reminded that that's not necessarily true on the Saudi leg of the trip. Take it even further, even. I was just looking at the quote he said to the Yonit Levy, the, the, uh, the journalist that he did at the White House that was played on the first day of his visit. The quote goes, the more Israel is integrated into the region as an equal and accepted, the more likely there's going to be a means by which they can eventually come to an accommodation with the Palestinians down the road. That is incredible because it's really an inversion of the Arab Peace Initiative because the, the Arab Peace Initiative was front load the Palestinians on the final status issues on, on, on two states and all that relates to it. And then there will be normalization. And he's saying the reverse now. So it is, is a real shift. And I'm, I'm glad um, that Ben pointed it out. And I think it's, it's, I would sharpen it even further. I mean, wouldn't you say that it's almost uh, the, the one foreign policy issue that Biden, instead of reversing what President Donald Trump did, is kind of, you know, accepting it and building on it in terms of embracing this, uh, this approach? Yeah, because look, basically, the Biden administration and and uh, the Bennett uh, now Lapid government are, are basically at, at the same place. That the the dynamics on all sides do not allow for this issue now to come to center stage. And um, you know, also between Abbas and Hamas, 
there's there's just the political dam- dynamics of Israelis and Palestinians do not allow a two-state solution to happen. Ben, how much damage did you see or what was the reaction um, to, of the Palestinians to Biden saying out loud, I'm for a two-state solution, but, quote, not in the near term? I mean, didn't that basically highlight them as being the big losers of this trip? Yeah, but... It did, but at the same time, I don't think they were surprised. I mean, that is just part and parcel for what the Biden administration's posture toward the Palestinians has been for the past year and a half. You know, so in Michael Oren's memoirs, the former U.S. ambassador to Israel, he would say that Biden would often say quotes such as, you know, as my father always said, never crucify yourself on a small cross. And, you know, there's no way of reading his administration's policy other than viewing that the administration views the Palestinians as a small cross. You know, they have been outraged for the past year and a half that the U.S. has failed to reopen the consulate, that they are sort of operating by this model of, quote unquote, shrinking the conflict that the new Israeli government, or the post-Netanyahu government, I should say, has started employed that David pointed out that, you know, they believe that by employing these economic measures in lieu of political ones, that you're going to create a a reality that sort of naturally creates a political horizon. But that just doesn't track with how the conflict has worked for the past 50 years, you know, or if you even want to take it further back to the creation of the state of Israel. You know, if you look at Barack Obama's remarks in 2013, compared to what Joe Biden said throughout this visit, the difference could not be more stark in terms of the forward momentum that it tried creating in terms of the vision that it laid out for the Palestinians, in terms of the vision that it laid out for Israelis, for that matter you know, in terms of creating a two-state solution or creating an environment. David, you wrote that Israelis had hoped for some sort of public reassessment by Biden of the scope of uh, the Iran uh, nuclear negotiations, but really he didn't budge on the U.S. position and he was still offering the JCPOA of 2015. He was still talking diplomacy. He only said in the Yonit Levy interview that uh, force would be used as a last resort. Do you think that uh, Israelis came away disappointed by that? Right. The piece I wrote in, in Haaretz, I said I didn't expect any any change on, on the on the Iranian issue. Um, look, it's clear the Israeli polit- political figures would like what Biden and Blinken, uh, the Secretary of State, have said, which is a longer and stronger deal, a JCPOA 2.0, if you will, which deals with a, a larger set of issues, SNAP inspections, ballistic limit, uh, missile limitations, and maybe some focus on Iran's regional activity. But I don't see the U.S. doing this right now, wrongly or rightly. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, you can't get them to do something narrower. Uh, how are you going to get them to do something more? Bennett kind of hinted at it when he kind of seemed to be close to adapting the Macron position, president of France, more for more, when he said no sunset, no sanctions, uh, meaning no limitations on the restrictions on their uranium enrichment. And if they do that indefinitely, then there should be a wider lifting of sanctions. But the U.S. is not doing that right now. So I think uh, Israel would like some sort of plan B uh, of a wider, if if it's a wider diplomacy or if not, it'll go, it'll probably lead to more sanctions at least. But right now the U.S. is not, is not, um, you know, not looking to do that. The the most public uh, form of difference between Biden and, and Lapidan, probably Biden wasn't surprised. Again, 
Lapid is, is also in an election season and is not what doesn't want to be outflanked by Netanyahu. And I don't mean to suggest he doesn't believe it, by the way, but where Lapid publicly said, you know, if you don't put force on the table, diplomacy is no chance. And that's something most Americans agree to, too, that diplomacy needs to be backed by force. It's just for the United States having fought two wars, you know, at a, such a heavy price. Um, and uh, give, given his party, I don't think this is something, you know, that he wants to, you know, he, he wants any more than last resort. By the way, both uh, Obama and Trump did not try to focus on the idea of war with Iran. So there, there's more consistency here. Uh, it didn't really move the ball uh, dramatically, this visit at all. And the Iranian response was for a senior aide to go on Al Jazeera and announce publicly that Iran has the technical capabilities to manufacture a nuclear bomb. To you, does that signal that they feel warned, that they need to saber rattle? How does that response fit into uh, what happened? I mean, clearly the Iranians feel they need some sort of an answer, and they're invited, They're having Putin come this week. There's also going to be a meeting with Erdogan. Uh, look, I think the one thing, ironically, that, that probably got the United States um, uh, focused on some of the elements here of, 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 of Iranian, uh, um, you know, malign activity was the idea of armed UAVs, armed drones that they're going to provide Russia in the Ukraine. And that was something that Biden really did hammer, I think, also in Saudi Arabia and I think that's something that goes beyond the nuclear, that it's a, it's a wake-up call for the United States that, that the problem that the United States has with Iran is not limited to nukes, and Israel keeps saying that, and this was a reminder. So I think in, a, in an unusual way, the, 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 the fact that Russia and Iran are getting closer is a reminder about you know what a destabilizing force it is, and there's going to be an Israel implication, and I was there last month on the border uh, um, with Syria, uh, talking to a senior commander who said, look, let's be honest here, uh, Russia and Iran are going to get closer because of this war in, in the Ukraine. That could potentially limit Israel's room of maneuverability because Israel gets deconflict from Russian aircraft and, and bomb uh, Iranian uh, targets inside Syria. So the Ukrainian war, I think, is really playing out in many different ways, whether it's the, the wheat uh, shortages uh, in the Middle East, whether it's the drones, and of course, whether it's the oil production dimension. Uh, that was clearly the subtext for Biden, especially in his, in his visit in Saudi Arabia, saying, uh, we will not leave a vacuum. We're here in the Middle East to stay. Ben, was there anything, uh, any buzz about what was happening behind closed doors vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran and the Israel in the Saudi uh, meetings, uh, as contrasted to what was being say said on the podiums? Well, I think that last point that David made is really sort of the big takeaway of the trip in terms of, you know, the geopolitics of the world. So the United States is really endeavoring to make this sort of a U.S. versus Russia block, and it's going to be, you know, the United States and the Gulf states versus Russia and Iran. And, you know, also something that kind of flew under the radar was this sort of I2U2 right. summit that was uh, right. gathered between the United States, Israel, India, and the UAE. And this is really kind of sending a stark message to China. And it's saying that this is going to be like the Quad is in the Indo-Pacific, where we are going to, you know, defend our regional interests against China and prevent China from establishing a foothold in the region. And you really saw this bear out where, you know, this within 24 hours after the I2U2 summit, 
you know, an Indian billionaire got the construction tender for the Haifa port, which is what China's been going for for years now. You know, the United States isn't sort of like limiting itself to, you know, what the Israelis necessarily want the headlines to be. You know, this is very much a more of a 30,000 high view of things where it's like the United States has its regional interests, but that is very much to fight back against the regional interests of its adversaries. Yeah, David, you've written that uh, when you use the words inter- regional integration, Israel and the Gulf states might interpret that differently, that Israel's much more defense-oriented when it hears regional integration, and the Arab states are much more thinking about uh, economics and technology. Right. This is a huge point, I think, uh, that you know that both are using the same words, but are focusing on different things. For Israel, it's about almost like a regional alliance against Iran. And and the Emirates and the others do not want to be the tip of Israel's spear. They don't see that they are as, as militarily strong as Israel. And they're right on Iranian doorstep while Israel's a thousand kilometers away. So, you know, the, the real excitement of, of regional integration, I think, in terms of nuts and bolts, day to day, you know, the guts of it on the military side is CENTCOM. It's the U.S. military command in Tampa, Florida, where for the first time you have Israelis and Arabs and Pakistanis are all sitting together and they're sharing intelligence, they're sharing cyber capabilities, they're sharing, looking at the same radar. This is the real revolution. It's just the journalists don't get a chance to see it because it's going on behind closed doors. So just one point. So I think this trip did mark a, a significant event where, you know, it kind of flew under the radar, but I definitely think it's worth flagging that one of the aid steps that Biden offered to the Palestinians was allowing the Allen B. Bridge crossing to be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And this wouldn't have happened without the mediation efforts of Morocco, which was a party to the Abraham Accords. And this is really the first example where a party to the Abraham Accords really played a central role in mediating issues between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And even though it is, you know, just sort of one relatively minor step, it shows what could happen if it is employed, if the Abraham Accords are employed to make the lives of Palestinians better and to bring Israelis and Palestinians closer together. And obviously this development was paired with the Israeli military chief of staff making his first public announced visit ever to Morocco. So I think it shows what can happen when, you know, the Abraham Accords are employed in not just sort of a real politic kind of manner. I've always believed the Abraham Accords should be a bridge and not a bypass road. Uh, it's true that the 24-7 idea is not new. They, it's been announced in the past a couple times, but hopefully this time it'll take root. And I, I, I give Morocco credit and, uh, and hoping that it, it really does take root. And I'd, I'd like to see, you know, the, the new normalizers create political space for some, even the old normalizers. Look at this big solar farm in Jordan where Israel's going to bring in desalinated water in return for electricity, Emirati funding. You know, there might be other projects like this. So that I, I agree with Ben. I really hope that we look for more of these things where the where the Gulf and other Arab Abraham Accord countries could contribute also on the Palestinian issue. See, Ben, you say something optimistic and David agrees with you. <laughs> you're finally you're finally in the full side of the glass, the full half of the right, glass. Right, 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 right. I realize also, like, I probably sound, uh, you know, by saying with less media focus, it shows that I haven't been a journalist now for 22 years. Well, <laughs> since you that. guys are both sitting in Washington, D.C., let's close this out with a discussion of the politics of this for uh, Biden. 
from where you guys sit, were the gains of this trip, whatever they were, worth the political cost, the blowback that Biden is suffering from his fist bump with MBS, the man he promised to treat as a pariah on the campaign trail in 2020? Uh, when I look at the U.S. cable channels, it's all about the fist bump. It's all about uh, MBS. And uh, especially if this trip doesn't result in any, you know, uh, convincing of the Saudis to uh, raise uh, oil production in order to lower gas prices, uh, kind of highlighting the lack of influence and ability that Biden has to push Saudi to to do this. What do you think about the political costs of this for uh, for Biden? Look, I, I would just say that, uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel is not the only one who talked about crisis as opportunity, but it's clear that without Putin and the war in Ukraine, uh, he's the one who has brought the U.S. And, and Saudi closer. Biden wouldn't have made this trip without it. And I think uh, the bulk of the American public who, you know, I think does want Ukraine to succeed and does not like the idea of uh, all this dependency on Russian energy, you know, I think most Americans are we're rooting for the success of the president. Maybe not everyone in, in all parts of his own party, the president's party, but most Americans. And clearly, Look, the price of gas has already come down in the last few weeks. Uh, as people think America's heading towards a, maybe a, a, a recession, but certainly an economic slowdown, demand is, is weakening. So I think Biden, whatever, how much the Saudis add, might work out okay here that the Americans will see the price of the pump uh, drop. Uh, and I think for most, if it helps there, if it helps in the war, uh, in terms of lessening dependency on, on Russian energy, I think most Americans will will support um, the, put the president in. So, you know, I think Biden returns to Washington finding the exact same reality he left a week ago, despite, you know, all the pomp and circumstance of his visit. You know, he's, he's failed to quell a single concern of his party regarding human rights. You know, he went to Israel with Shireen Abu Akhla, you know, being a specter that haunted the entire visit. He didn't meet with her family. He fist bumped MBS and the fist bump heard around the world. And, you know, they haven't gone any further in terms of, you know, quelling any concerns about, you know, the legacy that this has for Jamal Khashoggi's murder. And meanwhile, despite, you know, the rapturous reception that he had from Israeli officials, you know, Republicans are still using his trip as sort of an attack point that he doesn't respect the, you know, Israel's sovereignty over Jerusalem, or he is secretly looking to, you know, launch back channel negotiations or whatever stuff that they're saying that just has no foundation in reality whatsoever. So, and meanwhile, Israeli and Palestinians are not a single step closer toward conflict resolution. And all the things that we said before about, you know, this sort of regional integration is just beyond further and further away. So I don't know how he can view this trip as a success. Well, we'll leave it at that. David and Ben, it was really great having both of you on the show and, uh, you know, highlighting um, your, your shared experiences as, uh, as reporters for, uh, for Israeli outlets uh, in Saudi Arabia. Well, thank you very much for having us, Allison. Thank you, Allison. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Don't forget to tune in for the latest on the fifth Israeli elections on the Election Overdose podcast coming up on Friday. I'd like to thank my guests, Ben Samuels and David Makovsky, and my producer, Shani Aviram, and our intern, Dina Barish. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.